This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You may be the first president in history to go down because you can't stop inappropriately talking about an investigation. Is that policy in writing somewhere? Uh, I, I think so. I took it as a direction. I mean, as the president of the United States, with me alone saying, I hope this, I took it as this is what he wants me to do. Hello and welcome to Drumcast, the show about the man who says the health care bill passed by House Republicans is mean. Last month, he called it a great plan. He's Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Today on the show, Trump as a brand. People sometimes think about Donald Trump as having three biographical phases, businessman, then reality TV star, then politician. But really, there's no difference in the way Trump has approached these roles. He's the same guy doing the same stuff to sell himself in the same way, through spectacle, glitz, and massive distraction. The Donald Trump of Atlantic City, the Donald Trump of The Apprentice, and the Donald Trump of Pennsylvania Avenue are all engaged in the same enterprise and the same performance with the same goal, the goal of making the Trump name into a super valuable super brand. My guest today says that that kind of hollowed out, not actually making anything company that Trump represents isn't unusual. It's the epitome of how businesses want to present themselves in the global economy. I'll be back with the writer Naomi Klein to talk about her new book right after we do the tweets. After seven months of investigations and committee hearings about my collusion with Russians, nobody has been able to show any proof, said the fake news media hates when I use what has turned out to be my very powerful social media over 100 million people. I can go around them. Despite the phony witch hunt going on in America, the economic and job numbers are great. Regulations way down, jobs and enthusiasm way up. The new Rasmussen poll, one of the most accurate in the 2016 election just out, with a Trump 50% approval rating. That's higher than O's numbers. I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director. Witch hunt. I'm joined in the studio today by the writer Naomi Klein. Her new book is No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need. Naomi, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so I thought your book was was really insightful, interesting for a bunch of reasons. 
One thing I liked about it was that you don't focus on analyzing Trump psychologically. You don't really focus on the question of what's wrong with this guy. You look at him in cultural terms and economic terms. And I thought it was interesting. It looked like you went back and actually watched a lot of his reality TV show, Celebrity Apprentice. What and the you, original Apprentice, yeah. And the original Apprentice. Yep. What did you learn watching that? So I'm, the first part of the book is looking at Trump as a super brand, because I think it is really significant that there is the first fully commercialized super brand as a U.S. president. And, and I think in terms of understanding the web of conflicts of interest and also his relationship with his base, why it is so hard to hold him accountable for anything, you really need to understand what it means to, to be a super brand. And so for, for Trump, that is all about The Apprentice, right? Because before The Apprentice, he was much more of a traditional, traditional businessman in the sense that he was about building buildings, buying buildings, and he just happened to really like to slap his name on those buildings in, you know, big letters. And he happened to have this tremendous gift for self-promotion. I suppose, you know, gift may not be the right word, but, you know, he knew, has always known how to work the press, as, as you guys know in New York very, very well, right? He had long before reality television, he turned his personal life into a live action soap opera, right? So he under, he understood the value of, of the show. But but through the 80s and 90s, he was still a traditional company. And by traditional company, I mean a company that was about selling the product, a, a product, not a brand first. Building like, buildings, I mean, digging holes yeah. in the ground and constructing things and selling them. Right. Yeah. But in this period, you saw the emergence of hollow brands. I, I called them in my first book, No Logo, where there was this the the order flipped, right? The, the, the traditional role of branding was you had manufacturing-based companies that, that made a product. Um, they branded that product. They slapped a, a you know, a, a friendly figure like Uncle Ben or Aunt Jemima on, on their uh, product to differentiate it. And they poured money into marketing so that you would pay more, pay a premium for their branded product. But they were still product-based companies. The shift happened really in the 90s when you had companies like Nike announcing, um, actually, we are a marketing company first. We are selling an idea first, and we are extending that idea into this kind of branded cocoon, right? But because our primary, our primary labor is the labor of finding that core idea, connecting with consumers. We don't need to produce our own products at all. Other people can do that. Um, so this is intimately connected with the fact that it became a lot easier in this era, thanks to free trade, to produce your products through a web of contractors and subcontractors. So Trump didn't become that kind of company until The Apprentice. The Apprentice mm. um, gave him this opportunity to have this long commercial for his brand where he was actually paid, right? I mean, this was branding gold where he w- he was paid to to have endless commercials for the meaning of his brand. And the meaning of his brand has always been power through wealth, absolute power through wealth. I would argue even impunity through through wealth. If you're rich enough, you you're you're living the absolute dream, right? And you can do 
whatever you want to whoever you want. And so the long, loving shots of his helicopters and private jets and, uh, you know, all of his many homes, all of this reinforced the dream of Trump. But yeah, going back and, and, and watching The Apprentice is really interesting because I refer to it as sort of televised class warfare because, you know, he, he, you, you start with these images of a homeless guy sleeping on the streets of New York and then pan to Trump. And it's very clearly we live in this world of losers and winners, big losers and big winners. So this is this is tapping into the, the inequality that, you know, was at the center of Bernie Sanders' campaign. But whereas Bernie Sanders is saying, let's fix it, Trump is saying, no. My promise is I'm going to make you a winner in this world where not being a winner is so very dangerous. So you've already introduced an interesting question, which is whether taking this into politics is a cynical exercise enhanced to increase his brand value, which I think he talked about explicitly when he ran for president at an earlier time. And clearly – um, he has, you know, he hasn't divested from his business. I mean, he he's he is making a lot of money. He's expanding from, his business. Yeah, from he's using the presidency to make money, so he's clearly doing that. But there's an interesting question about whether he's doing that cynically, and that that's the goal of being president. That's why he wants to be president. Or is this a man who just thinks this way about branding and and appearance and creating the the this bifurcation around success and failure does he think he's doing that for the country for real or is he just having a laugh at the rest at the expense of his followers well you know as you say i i I don't engage in too much trump psychologizing i just Mm. feel like that's a whole i'll never get out of um (laughs) but you know one thing that I, i think is fair to say is that is that trump has been doing this for so long that he does not know where his personal brand, where the commercial brand Trump ends and where some notion of there being a non-commercial Trump brand ends. Like, I think he he cannot separate these things. And his children, who have grown up entirely within the cocoon of the Trump brand, you know, I say in the book that he breeds brands, and I think that's fair <laughs> enough. You know, they have their own baby brands. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the way he brought his kids into The Apprentice, um, e- even the way he brought Ivanka into, you know, Miss, Miss, I think Miss Teen Universe at a very young age, you know, they've always been brand extensions as as well, <laughs> maybe first, right? And the extent to which they appear to be his favorite, uh, his favorites, and he clearly has favorites in his family is you know, the extent to which they're successful brands. So I can't answer that question. Yeah. And I'm not sure it's answerable. Um, because the whole idea, and this is where I think there's been a failure to really reckon with how new this is. I mean, the whole idea of having a global empire built around an actual human being, right, is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, even the whole brand, like the hollow-based company that whose business model is to sell its name to other companies to do the work, right? Because since The Apprentice, Trump you know, still has a couple of flagship properties like Trump Tower in New York and Mar-a-Lago. The vast majority of his money comes from selling his Brand name. licensing, as he yeah. said. Yeah. Um, and, and not just for the ties and the suits and the water and the stakes and all of that, but for the Trump Towers around the world and resorts around the Trump resorts around the world. Um, so this is, a, this is a new business model. It creates a huge new opportunities uh, for, for conflicts of interest. But just like there are Trump avatars 
out there selling Trump products, you know, as we speak. And as he's saying, he's separated from his business. It's a house of mirrors. You know, Ivanka, who has also said she's separated from her business, there are avatars of, of Ivanka selling Trump condominiums in Manila. You know, every, they, they can't separate because they built companies around themselves. Right. The, the name is being sold and the profits are going to them. And that's that's a question. I've, we've talked about those conflicts of interest a lot on the show. And it is a question I've raised. Of how could you even separate yourself from such a business? Because without the name, there's no business. Right. And, 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 and this is where... Uh, you know, I think that that, that the lawsuits that have that have emerged now. I mean, when I wrote the book, there there was uh, a lawsuit that I think had was less of a threat to Trump around whether or not he's violating the Constitution, and it was I think a Washington hotel restaurant, a restaurant workers uh, union uh, taking him to court. But now you have 190 Congress people who are alleging that he's in violation of the emolument clause that says that he that, that he can't be receiving gifts from foreign governments and that's a very big deal because what it, the constitution actually says is he can't do this without permission from congress so mm. the actual actors in this are now involved right they're saying we should have been consulted um and it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that lawsuit in terms of unpacking some of this because a lot so far, Trump has focused on his or his spokespeople have focused on on just the hotel room side of it. And I actually think that's probably the weakest piece of the legal case um, because you can easily you know make the argument that okay, so maybe they're favoring these Trump hotels, but you know the rate that they're not paying extra or you know that that business was happening anyway. But then you know you look at something like the fact that the Chinese government has detained labor watchdogs who were blowing the whistle on abusive labor conditions in Ivanka, factories making Ivanka-branded goods, they very well may think that this is a good way, this is a, a, a gift to, to the Trump family. To ingratiate themselves, like yeah. making sure he gets all these patents, which he's been getting, which Ivanka's yeah. been getting too. Yeah. But it, it suggests an interesting strategy. And I mean, I mean, if the essence of Trump is the brand and the brand is what he cares about, hit him where he lives, right? He doesn't care what you say about his policies. I mean, this is a guy who attack the health care bill he supported two weeks ago is cruel. He can say anything about policy. He can pivot 180 degrees. But if you figure out a way to attack his brand, reduce the value of the brand, he really suffers. It may or may not lead to impeachment, but it's something he cares about. He he definitely cares. And, and, and that's why it's important to understand what it is that he's selling, that he's selling this fantasy of being of absolute power of being the boss um, that can get away with with anything that's the promise at the heart of, of his project that's why he said on the campaign trail I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it so every time Trump gets away with something else it doesn't hurt his brand it can it, it, it reinforces his brand he's following the the formula of good branding um, which is, Stay true to your your brand, but on the other hand, he clearly is deeply bothered by you know parodies like President Bannon and Pre you know and 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 you know any any suggestion that he is a puppet of anyone, whether that puppet is Putin or Pence or whoever, he because that hurts his brand. But I think there are limits to the strategy, and I do think he is vulnerable on policy. I don't agree that he's not vulnerable at all on policy, because there is this other brand, and that brand is. Make America Great Again yeah. is is MAGA, um, and he, th there were promises that were made related to that brand that were very resonant um, to to workers in this country. I, I'm going to bring the jobs back. I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to drain the swamp. And one of the things that really worries me is that 
Trump the showman um, is so good at the art of distraction. And this is something he has understood since he started putting on the Trump show. I mean, he, you know, I quote in the book that this 1980s interview with Playboy where he says the show is Trump and it's sold out everywhere, right? That's still true. And so long as we are focused on the Trump show, and and I, I would make a distinction that Trump is the executive producer of part of the Trump show, um, but not all of the Trump show. I mean, you know, I don't think he wants the Russia investigation going on. I think that's pretty clear. But that constant drama and really this reality show that's unfolding in Washington uh, right now seems to be sucking up about 80 or 90 percent of the media attention and at the expense of a really systematic look every day, you know, with uh, with a lot of attention at how he is breaking the promises at the heart of that mega brand. You know, he, he might not care if he if he's um, you know changing his position from week to week, but I, I would argue that there's a substantial number of voters that do care, and I think there's vulnerability there, um, but it's not being exploited because the Trump show continues to be so seductive and. This is the dynamic that elected Trump, the addiction to the Trump show, and it's intimately connected to ratings. So let's talk about the media for a minute and then about the opposition. Now, I know you've been here all week. You've been reading the American press, you usually live in, in uh, Toronto, right? But um, how good or bad a job do you think the media is doing? It's the, the f- specific thing you talked about, keeping the focus on performance around a, a, some particular fight about jobs is, of course, close to impossible because of the tsunami of news we get every day at six o'clock. And it's I mean, there are uh, literally hundreds of outrages around the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And so maintaining the focus on any one of them is almost an impossibility. So if that's the standard, I don't know how you can do it. But but what's your what's your take having been sort of absorbed in the press here for a little bit, at least? Well, I I do think it's a little worrying that well before Trump, we had politicians who were increasingly using the best tools of branding to sell an image to the public, which often was not backed up by policies that were in keeping with that brand. Obama was a master master marketer, a master brander. He was not a commercialized brand as a president at, in this in, in the way Trump is by any means. But we're seeing this from politicians now. As you mentioned, I live in Canada. We've got an incredible brand as a PM. You know, Justin Trudeau knows how to do this from the progressive side. And you know, I actually think it's quite dangerous what's going what what goes on with these liberal politicians who are really great at selling progressive ideas and putting out progressive memes and and symbols and raising hopes and not backing them up nearly enough with policies and the way that creates a context for right-wing populism to to, to enter in uh, and into into the gap between the promise and the reality. So there were these mea culpas of uh, of, of how the ta- the media helped set the table for for Trump in, in in creating election coverage that was so much like reality TV, and then along comes a reality TV show star and says, "Well, you guys are jokers. I actually know how to how to do this." You know, I understand that it's a very difficult situation. I mean, when you have all day testimony, you know, on Capitol Hill from Jeff Sessions, you have to cover it. You know, you have to cover it when Comey is testifying. But we have to be aware. That Mitch McConnell has never had it so good. Like, and, and believe me, I think he did not design this. I think the Republicans have just stumbled into an absolutely perfect strategy for getting an extremely radical economic agenda that is redistributing wealth upwards on every front. And they're doing it with almost no attention. I mean, all eyes on Comey 
And meanwhile, they're dismantling Dodd-Frank, you know, all eyes on, uh, you know, on Sessions. And meanwhile, the Senate is negotiating health care in the dark, and there's almost no coverage for it, right? So this is working really, really well for that economic project. And I think the, the, the problem with going all in with this idea that this is going to lead to impeachment is, of course, it's not going to lead to impeachment so long as the Republicans are in power. And they're not going to throw Trump under the bus so long as he's holding on to his base. And he's going to hold on to his base until there is some focus on the economic betrayals. Yeah. I mean, but you talk about this Republican project, but doesn't that cover over a a split in the party between, you know, the people who are libertarian, government government minimalists, people who want government out of everything, everything left to the the free market, you know, what you call neoliberalism Uh, on the one hand. And the sort of Trump view of the world, on the other hand, which is much more corporatist, uh, government intervening in the marketplace in all sorts of ways, uh, populist and nationalist. But Trump is not is not Milton Friedman. I mean, there to the extent Trump has a philosophy, it's very, very different kind of Republican politics from that libertarian free market view of the world. Well, if we look at what he's actually done with economic policy, I would argue it's pretty much in keeping, right? I mean, you're absolutely right. That's what he ran on, right? Um, and there's no doubt that his willingness to mix in a this hyper anti-globalist position and, and trying to get at the sort of Breitbart comment section that is just suspicious of anything international, global, foreign, you know, whether it is immigrants, the United Nation, the World Trade Organization, NAFTA, I mean, all of it is just like, this just this incredibly sort of xenophobic response to the world that is new in the willingness to go that far, right? I mean, there's always been elements of it within within the Republican Party. But if we look at the economic policies that he's actually introducing, he's he's outsourced it to the Heritage Foundation and Goldman Sachs. I mean, this is, what is he doing on the economic front that lives up to what you're describing, right? His infrastructure plan turns out to actually be a, a privatization plan, right? Um, and uh, what he's doing with NAFTA, if you listen to his commerce secretary, uh, is deepening the, the 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 agenda that he ran against. He, he's literally reassuring business audiences that they're going to make it more like the best practices in the, in the TPP. So Trump did an incredible bait and switch on economics. Um, you know, he's he what he ended up doing, I think, is is going much further down that road. There's definitely a gap. And what he understands is that he couldn't run on that and Bannon understands it. But this is why I think they're vulnerable on it, because it is, you know, it turns out to have been such a lie. They're not delivering on any of those economic policies. Well, I think, though, he could swing back the other direction tomorrow, including attacking his own cabinet if it if it served him and it might at some point. Well, I think he's doing something so far pretty sly, right, where he knows he needs to feed some things to that anti-globalist base, right? So he feeds them dropping out of the Paris Accord, right? Which is not, you know, even though there may be many U.S. corporations that would rather have the U.S. stay in the Paris Accord, it's not really nearly so troubling as it would be if he were serious about what he was saying about free trade. And so on the one hand, it's sort of the cheapest possible positions, to satisfy that arm of his coalition. He's he's making those offers. Meanwhile, the things that would actually seriously be a threat 
to wealth and power in this country. He's going in the opposite direction, and he's hoping they won't notice. And they may well not notice if there isn't the kind of coverage that's necessary and if there aren't real alternatives. But it isn't, you know, it's also interesting that, you know, we're seeing more talk about single-payer health care. Um, you know, I think that's the kind of direction that, that there, needs to, there needs to be where there's a sort of a real alternative that people might get excited about. So let's talk about the opposition a little bit. I mean, with, with Trump in, in power, you and I agree. With Trump out of power, you and I probably don't agree about a lot of things. I'm much more of a center liberal. Mm-hmm. I don't have I don't have big issues with Obama's politics or Trudeau's politics. I understand your critique and find find it very interesting. But h- how do we avoid a super divisive fight on the American left between Sanders people and Clinton people? I mean, the the split we had, but which was in a way just a taste of things to come because. Trump, to people who agree with you, Trump makes an even stronger argument that Sanders politics is what should be offered in opposition. And probably to people like me, it makes a case for let's let's reclaim the center of the American electorate. That's how we win an election. And not to mention the but it isn't how you won. I mean, like, I mean, that is the campaign that Hillary. But, you know, in normal times. Trump doesn't win a, a, that election. The mm-hmm. the the Clinton liberal who's not Hillary Clinton wins that election. Well, I don't think we're in normal times, and I don't think we've been in normal times for a long time. And the sort of ground that you're describing, the sort of neoliberal center, you know, yeah. um, is collapsing around the world. And uh, when you say neoliberal. I mean, that's the term that always sort of bothers me. I mean, I I my first job was at the Washington Monthly, which had an older definition of neoliberal, which we would probably call progressive now. Very pro-government, pro-interventionist, but very practically minded. But neoliberal has become this term for people who believe in no government, you know, who who believe in the market solutions to everything. That I don't think that describes the politics. Maybe there are some Wall Street Democrats who, who would answer to that description. But I don't think it describes Hillary Clinton's politics. Do you, do you see her as a neoliberal? Yes, I do. Um, which isn't to say that she ran as a neoliberal fully. But I think what hurt her is she had a long track record as and, and was therefore not a credible messenger. Um, you know, she she ended up running against the TPP. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, if you help negotiate it, people are a little s- smart enough to uh, to to not see that as as credible. And and she was vulnerable on that. I see this fantasy emerging now that there could be like some sort of blank slate neoliberal, like a Macron type character who didn't have any baggage. I I frankly think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous, you know, looking at at what's happening in France right now, which is is a few years behind the U.S. in its adoption of these economic policies. I mean, France held out for longer and had a much more mixed economy um, than the the U.S. did and than the U.K. did. And I don't find it reassuring that Marine Le Pen got, you know, around, what, 30 percent of, of the vote in, in France. And I'm very worried that Macron is going to govern in a way that will position the far racist right in France to surge next time. And so, and, and it's because these, these policies really are failing. And I think there is a vacuum. And, you know, I, th- I think it's interesting what just happened in the UK, where what really turned it around for Corbyn, and, you know, he didn't win, but um, he did better than, you know, anybody expected. And it's certainly significant that, that, that the Tories lost their majority. What turned it around for him was coming out with a manifesto that 
address that held out genuine hope that they could improve lives. And it was a deeply anti-neoliberal platform. I mean, it was reversing privatizations of, of the rail system, massive investments in the public health care system, which has been cut and cut and cut. The campaign put public sector workers, particularly healthcare workers, at the center of the campaign, made them the stars of the campaign, telling the human stories of austerity, um, you know, campaigning to get rid of tuition fees. Uh, this is what galvanized people. And what what I what I believe is that when we, when we are in this time of a surging neo fascist right around the world, that the only way to counter that is with left wing economic populism. You know, but obviously we we disagree on this. But you know, I'm but passionate if, if about it. If your if your left and my left fight it out, yeah, that doesn't that bode very well for the results in the midterms or in the next presidential election. I mean, maybe it will maybe we'll be well, fine. I think some, but it's, some debate but, is healthy because yeah. the stakes are incredibly high. You know, and I I don't believe that the way the debate is playing out right now is particularly healthy. But I think there has to be a way to to talk to each other. And, you know, the the bubbles are not just the sort of Trump bubble and the Democrat bubble. There's also there are also bubbles between uh, the sort of center liberals and the Bernie, <laughs> the Bernie left, where there's very few pl- places to talk to each other, where it's not just screaming on Twitter. Um, there aren't many conversations like the one we're having. And you know, I think that's really too bad. I've been speaking to the writer Naomi Klein. Her new book is No is Not Enough. Naomi, thanks for joining me on the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks. That's it for today's show. But before we go, I have a recommendation for you. Have you checked out I Have to Ask yet? It's a podcast hosted by Isaac Chotner, our resident interviewer here at Slate. It's an excellent show. His past guests have included Congressman Tom Cole, that was a really good interview, and the writer at New York Magazine, Jonathan Chait. You can find all the episodes of I Have to Ask at slate.com slash ask. That's slate.com slash ask. And please make sure you're following us on Twitter. That's where you can keep up with all the latest from the Trumpcast team. We're at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.